If you have your Bibles there, you can turn back to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be studying this evening verses 1 to 4. This is a crucially important text that we're coming towards here, these early verses of Philippians chapter 2. And rather than take them in too big a chunk at once, we're just going to look this evening at roughly the first four verses. And our theme this evening, as you can see from the bulletin, if you have it before you, is the joy of unity. The joy of unity. It is both humbling and convicting to remember the words that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for all his people just hours before he died in his so-called high priestly prayer. In John 17 verse 20, as part of that prayer, Jesus said, I pray for those who will believe in me, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He was praying for all who would believe in him, that they would be perfectly one. For what purpose? So that the world would believe that the Father had sent the Son. It's humbling that one of the things that concerned the Lord Jesus most as he prepared for the cross was the unity And the witness of his church in the world for the millennia to come. But isn't it also convicting? Because so often the Christian church, either locally or further afield, can lack unity. Indeed, sometimes our divisions are more obvious than our unity. Christian unity, of course, starts in the local church. And rather than get into... Uh, unity on a, on a wider scale, which we could do this evening, and we could think of the importance of good relationships between denominations that do preach the gospel, despite differences in secondary matters. We could think about all those types of things, but we want to think particularly this evening about unity in the local church, because Paul, of course, was writing this letter to a local church. And Paul in, shares the concerns of his saviour here, In these first few verses of Philippians chapter 2, a concern for unity. Last week we considered the the last few verses of chapter 1. And we were thinking about what it means to live lives as gospel citizens or as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And really in a sense Paul is continuing that subject on into chapter 2 here. Because part of what it means to live as gospel citizens is to live together in unity. That there be oneness among the people of God. A disunited church will have no impact on the world in terms of advancing the gospel. Instead, if that division is left to fester, a church can tear itself apart and leave people wounded and broken. Oftentimes visitors to a church, whether those visitors are Christian or not, they can sense, they can pick up on whether there is a spirit, of unity, a spirit of unity in a congregation or not. And so one of the greatest concerns that each of us should always have for our church is that we be one, that we be united. And Paul describes for us here how that can be a reality. And just to emphasize again, really the first four verses here, we, we need to have the rest of the passage in mind at least. We'll come to that passage next week, God willing. But Paul is headed towards a great description of the humility of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. And it's with that in mind, it's with the example of Christ in mind and with the concern of Christ in mind that I just shared with you from his prayer 
in John 17 that we think about this subject of unity this evening in Philippians 2, 1-4. So let's think first of all this evening about the power for unity. What is it that even makes unity possible? The power for unity. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, and so on. Now, in a sense, I think our English translations could, uh, if we didn't understand properly here, they could mislead us a little bit because that word if can make it sound a bit uncertain here that, that Paul is, is speaking about things that, that might not be there, that might not be available to us. If there is any encouragement, if there is any comfort from love. And you might think, Paul, is he talking about things here that might exist or might not exist? Well, in fact, what Paul's saying here is that these things do exist, that there is encouragement, that there is comfort, that there is participation in the spirit and affection and sympathy. He's saying that these things are available to believers. They are available to the church. He says there in verse one, if there is any encouragement in Christ, the word for encouragement there is also uh, where, we, where we get one of the descriptions of the Holy Spirit. In John's Gospel, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as a helper or an encourager. It's the same root word that Paul uses here. So there's one thing that Paul says all Christians have available to us. We have the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. It's the whole reason you are a Christian is because the Holy Spirit is birth new life in you and has changed you and so there is supernatural powerful encouragement available to Christians that will unite us together Paul also says there is comfort from love the word for comfort there it's only used this one time in the whole New Testament it's a word meaning very deep affection a deep tenderness a deep gentleness This is a a unique love, a unique tenderness that again is only found through through being united to Christ by faith. He mentions there as well participation in the spirit or the word could also be translated fellowship in the spirit. He mentions affection and sympathy at the end of verse 1. Again, words emphasizing tender Christ-like love. And when you put it all together, friends, Paul is talking here about the bonds of love that are only available to those of us who together are united by faith to Jesus Christ and who have the spirit of Christ dwelling within us. That's the source of power. That's what empowers our unity as the church, the power of the Holy Spirit. If an army is going to fight a war, Not only do the soldiers need to be united, they need to be equipped. And most often, I would imagine, soldiers are given standard issue equipment. It's decided by HQ, it's decided by uh, their commanding officers what equipment they need, what armor, what resources. And so they're sent off resourced and equipped to the battlefield. And Paul has used military language a little bit already in Philippians, talking about the advance of the gospel. And for that advance, we are equipped by the power of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who provides all of God's people, friends, with the 
encouragement and the comfort and the bonds of love that we need together. Charles Spurgeon famously described the local church as the dearest place on earth. Very sort of Victorian way of putting it, but a a lovely description of the local church. The dearest place on earth. The Christian church has the power. It has the power to be the most tender, loving, sympathetic place on earth. Because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who anointed Jesus. The Spirit who empowered Christ in his earthly ministry. If you want to look at the impact that the presence and power of the Holy Spirit can have upon you, upon us, the church, we only need to look at Christ. Remember how he would reach out and touch the people that no one else would touch with a touch of love and friendship and care. The lepers, the paralytics, the blind. Remember how he welcomed women to follow him and little children to come to him. Paul is saying that by the power of that same spirit, the church is to be a place of Christ-like affection for one another. That's how we're to be united together. And so this should be a constant prayer point for us, friends, as we pray for our congregation that we would make use of the power available to us to be a united body of Christ-like, Christ-honoring, Christ-proclaiming believers. That the tenderness and the gentleness and the encouragement that mark the ministry of Christ would mark our dealings with one another and our witness to the world. Further on in Philippians, we'll see Paul deal with a case of disunity in the Philippian congregation. But he doesn't address it by giving anyone a telling off. He doesn't read the riot act. Instead, he He simply begins here, he begins laying the groundwork for for dealing with that case of disunity later on in the letter. He lays the groundwork for it here. He reminds them of the power available, that it's possible for them to be united in Christ. And we need to remember that if we ever find ourselves in a situation of disunity or disagreement, that no matter the rights or wrongs, there is power available to unite together. And if ever there is an individual or a group of individuals in a church or in a denomination who refuse to show tenderness or sympathy toward fellow church members, well, that's a strong indication that perhaps they aren't walking with Christ at all. Because a true believer will make every effort to live in unity with their fellow Christians. Saw that this morning with Abram and Lot. That it's a sign of stronger faith to nip disunity in the bud. To address it graciously and proactively like Abram did. Uh, And indeed in a a Christ-like self-sacrificial way. Now this may at times mean that Christians have to agree to disagree. Uh, Denominations exist, uh, uh, I believe, for for good reason. If if in clear conscience we, we simply cannot agree with fellow believers whom we love... Who, share, who preach the same gospel we do, but our convictions regarding uh, scripture in terms of, uh, for example, what it is we sing or who gets baptized in the church, those types of things. We have to graciously agree to disagree. We, we go our, our separate ways to some degree, but we do so in a spirit of love and respect. But nonetheless, friends, insofar as we're not 
disagreeing over doctrine or we're not disagreeing over what should be preached. There needs to be every effort made to use the power available to us in the local church to unite. Not to be quick to complain or to grumble or to hold petty grudges because none of that is Christ-like. Instead, we're to make it a point of prayer that we grow and strengthen in our unity by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. And so there's power available for our unity. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, Paul then highlights, and I've already begun to touch on this, but we need to think about the threat to unity. What is the biggest threat to unity in the local church? Well, look what Paul says in verse 2, first of all, just before we come to that threat. Look what Paul says in verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, uh, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So notice again there the, the, the theme of the letter, joy. Paul says, it's a joyful thing. The psalmist says this as well in Psalm 133. It's a beautiful, it's a good, it's a joyful thing when there is unity in the church. It strengthens the church. It commends the church to the world. Now, of course, when he talks about being of the same mind, this is a little bit of a, a detour, but when he, when he talks about being of the same mind and having the same love, he's not saying that as Christians, we all need to just become clones, that we all have to have the exact same opinions and ideas about everything all the time. But what he's talking about here is that whatever our various personality types, whatever the different ways in which we approach different issues or subjects or concerns, whatever the different gifts and ministries that we have, that we express them and invest in them all for the same ultimate purpose, which is to build each other up and to advance the gospel. To advance the gospel. Paul's talked about that earlier in the letter. It's the ultimate aim of everything we do as a church. So I was mentioning at the AGM that those four Boxes that we should be able to put everything we do in church life into. Well, ultimately, all of that uh, can come under the, the witness of the church that we would advance the gospel in our time and place, that the good news of Jesus Christ would go forth. The church must be united for that to happen. And that being the case, considering all that's, ex- that's at stake here the joy of believers, the witness of the church to the world. Paul warns us about what the biggest threat is to the unity of the church. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul has stated it positively, first of all, what we should aim for by the power of the Holy Spirit. Encouragement, sympathy, fellowship, unity. But now in a more negative way, he says what we're to avoid. Do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And his choice of words there is interesting. If you look back at chapter 1 verse 17 briefly. Chapter 1, verse 17, Paul here talking about his opponents in Rome, he says, or further afield even, he says, 
the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. It's the same word that he uses here in chapter 2 verse 3. Selfish ambition. And this can sometimes be, uh, sorry, it's, it's translated rivalry in some of your in translations in chapter 2 verse 3. But it's the same word as was used in the original in chapter 1 verse 17. Rivalry, selfish ambition. And this can sometimes be very subtle in the church. We thought about this a little bit back in chapter 1. That church members can sometimes do very good things for entirely wrong motives. Preaching, even preaching, as Paul says there in chapter 1 verse 17, can be done for no other reason than to be seen preaching. Or to have people, to have the experience of people listening to you. Serving in other ways, hospitality or children's ministry or whatever else it might be. It can be done for no other reason than to be seen to do it. Or even, even in a more nasty way, to just stop someone else from doing it. I'll do it because I don't really want that other person doing it. This kind of thing can destroy churches, friends. One of the worst aspects of what is tragically known as the worship wars in the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years in evangelical churches and cultures like ours, one of the worst aspects of it has been the division that it has brought into churches. Splits over what kind of music the church should be using or what kind of instruments or what words. Never mind what scripture commands about these things. People push their agendas for these things and can lead to churches holding different types of services for different types of age groups. Or just people leaving churches altogether. Often for no better reason than for selfish ambition. Church members can fall out over who gets to lead certain ministries, whether it's children's work, some kind of event in the local community, whatever it might be. Again, sadly, the only reason some people might put themselves forward at times for these tasks is selfish ambition. We read from what John says in 3 John verse 9. He says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Someone who refused to submit to the authority of the apostles and the elders because they were more concerned with their own agenda. This is entirely the opposite mindset, friends, of, of Christ, as we'll consider more next week, God willing. The word Paul uses there in verse 3 for conceit uh, it's maybe in some of your translations, it's translated vain glory. And it really means glory that doesn't exist. Imagined glory. That's what conceit is. It's imagining that I deserve some of the glory, some of the attention, some of the praise that I'm not getting or that someone else is getting. That my gifts deserve to be recognized. And Paul says that's foolish. That's vain glory. Because in the end, when Jesus Christ returns only God will get the glory and only God will deserve the glory. So friends, this is the biggest threat to unity in any congregation. It is the lingering selfishness in each of our hearts. The lingering selfishness in each of our hearts. All of us, no matter what gifts or responsibilities we have, we need to ask ourselves, 
Am I serving in my church with the right motives? Do I think I'm superior to anyone else? Am I serving out of a genuine concern for the needs of others? And again, just to emphasize here, this is not to say that there, there are never, in a sense, good differences of opinion. The need to sometimes discuss things. In your session or in your diaconate at times, there are, are differences of opinion. And they're talked through and it's discussed and thought, well, what's best here? And that's one of the reasons we have a plurality of leadership. Because rather than one person making all the decisions, we need different people's gifts and experience and personality and insight. And sometimes we need to speak up and we need to give our opinion or our input because we're seeing something or some opportunity or some problem and and no one else has seen it. But there's a difference between that, friends, and and someone just continuing to argue in favour of something because it's their idea. It's their hobby horse. It's uh, It's their personal ambition and they want to be right. We've probably all been in situations where we've heard Christians talk through issues or contribute something to a discussion. And and sadly, there's been a a tone of snippiness, pettiness and selfishness. Again, the biggest threat to the unity of this or any other church is the lingering selfishness in each of our hearts. John Owen, uh, a revered theologian, In reform circles, he famously wrote a lot about the need to put our sin to death and uh, the the work, the mortification of sin. And he famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that's certainly true on an individual level. But we could also even say, be killing sin or it could be killing your church. May we not be selfish. May we check our hearts And before we rush to defend our preferences or push our agenda, may we consider the unity that we're commanded to maintain, the witness that is our ultimate goal, and may we do nothing from rivalry or conceit. So we've seen the power for unity. We've seen the biggest threat to unity. And I want to finish by considering the key to unity. The key to unity. How do we fight against this threat to our unity? Well, the key to unity, quite simply, is humility. Humility. Look at verse 3 again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The word significant there has to do with the sense of higher value. It's not a case of one person being more important than another. Of course, we're all equally image bearers of God. But it's a case of each of us individually putting a higher value on someone else, their gifts, their needs, their interests. Again, perfect example we saw this morning with Abram and Lot. Something doesn't have to be impressive necessarily to anyone else to be valuable to us, does it? Some of you may well have treasured possessions that they wouldn't fetch much at all. They might not fetch a penny if they were part of an auction. But they are priceless to you because of maybe the person that gave it to you or, or, or the situation in which you, which you got it. Or it's priceless in some way. Well, that's how we're to view our fellow church members, friends. That they are precious. That they are of immense value to us. The people that you're sitting beside this evening or the people around you this evening. 
that they are of higher value to you than your own needs and interests. And viewing others like that will cultivate humility in our hearts. Humility is one of those things, maybe, it almost is one of those sort of Christianese words, humility. People think, well, what exactly is humility? Well, a helpful definition that I don't know where I first heard this, but I heard it many years ago and I've, I've stuck with it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. In other words, it's not this kind of what is really just a false humility of going around saying, oh, I'm not good at anything. Anyone else would be far better than me. I don't have anything to offer. That's just sort of fake humility. Real humility is putting greater value on the other person, regardless of how their gifts or their personality compare to yours. Here's how C.S. Lewis describes humility in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, probably all you will think about a truly humble person is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's the key, thinking of yourself less. That's why Paul says here in verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And it's like anything else in life, friends, the more we practice it, the more we put it into motion, the more it will come to us, the more it will become a a sort of a spiritual reflex for us. And so I don't want anything I said in my previous point to put anyone off this evening serving in some way in the church. And it's good to see names going down for the psalm singing in Mount Vale and uh, for hosting the home groups and, and some of you involved in various other ministries in the church. I'll not take time to list them all now in case I forget one. But whether it's finding ways to serve in any of our ongoing ministries or whether there's something that you feel as a congregation we could be doing. Whether it's giving a word of encouragement to someone when they've done something well, CY or for the children or uh, in the nursing home. Whether it's support of a worthwhile missionary endeavour. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And again, I keep giving you little trailers for it, but God willing, next week we're going to consider the the greatest example of humility in the history of the world, that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll explore that vitally important passage just ahead of us in Philippians 2 about Christ and his incarnation, the humility of that, his atoning death, his service of his people. But for now, how can each of us grow in humility? What steps might we take Uh, to grow in our humility and so aid the the cause of unity in our church. Well, I'll leave you with some suggestions. These come from uh, a more recent commentary in Philippians from Tony Morita and Francis Chan. And and I think these are are all great suggestions. I'll share them briefly with you. Ways that we can grow in humility. First of all, grow in humility by reflecting upon the cross of Christ. Grow in humility by reflecting upon the cross of Christ. We will do that more in a more uh, concentrated way next week, Lord willing.
But as the writers say, there is no room for pride at the cross. There is no hint of pride. There is no hint of selfish ambition in what Christ suffered at the cross. Naked, tortured, abandoned, hated. An act of complete humility. The writers say there we see the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man and the grace of our Lord. Our next communion season isn't far away in the Lord's timing. And each communion season is an opportunity to reflect upon the cross of Christ. Each Lord's day is an opportunity to reflect upon the cross of Christ. Maybe find a helpful little book, something easily read, but that provokes you and and causes you to further appreciate what Christ has done. Uh, The Cross He Bore by Professor Leakey is a, a great book, a great place to start in that regard. Grow in humility by reflecting upon the cross of Christ. Secondly, grow in humility by reflecting upon the glory of Christ. Not just upon his death, but also his resurrection and his ascension and the glory that he enjoys now. Paul warns us, we've thought already, he warns us against vain glory in verse 3, conceit. And the best way to guard against Wanting glory for ourselves is to consider the matchless glory that Christ enjoys. You can read about that in Philippians 2 verses 9 to 11. And we remind ourselves that no matter how many pats on the back we get in this life. Or no matter how much we might think we deserve glory in this life. Christ in heaven receives all the glory and will receive all the glory. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is God to the glory of God the Father. Christ has done so much more. He is so much more deserving of glory than anything that we will ever do. Paul says in Colossians 1.18, Christ is the firstborn from the dead that in everything, in everything, he might be preeminent. That is to say, most glorified. And so to grow in humility, we consider the glory of Christ. Third way to grow in humility is through prayer. And not just by asking for humility if we feel that we lack it. Of course, we should do that in prayer. But to, 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 practice, to be in the practice of prayer in general. Prayer itself is an act of humility. Prayer is, is acknowledging to the Father that we are, there are things that we need, that we do not have in ourselves, that, that, we, that we depend upon him. That's why in some settings, Christians prefer to, to kneel to pray. That is a posture of humility before God. It's an admission that I can't proclaim the gospel. I can't change anyone's heart. I can't serve with pure motives. I can't love my neighbor or my fellow church members without the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And so we can grow in humility in the practice of prayer. And then finally, and we've already talked about this, but grow in humility by serving others. Serve in quiet, unseen ways. Sacrifice your own interests for the needs of the church family or the church's mission. Use the gifts that God has given you. Practice. It'll make perfect eventually. When we see Christ and are made perfect by him. And so four ways to grow in humility. Through considering the cross of Christ, the glory of Christ, through prayer and through service of others. The power for unity 
comes from the Holy Spirit who dwells in every believer. The threat to unity is the lingering selfishness in each of our hearts. And the key to unity is humility, which we can gain through prayer by looking to Christ, the greatest servant in the history of the world, and by ourselves serving others. And so by God's grace, friends, may we make use of the power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen the unity of our church. May we avoid selfish ambition and conceit which will divide the church. And may we look to Christ and by his grace become a humbler church. Amen.